back to Murdoch Mystery Podcast. Murdoch Mysteries, the Murdoch Mysteries Podcast, <laughs> where we go episode by episode through the TV show and delve into some of the historical references made by the show and delve a little deeper into them. I am Ivy. I am Kalinda. And this week we did episode, are we on episode eight? Seven. Seven. Episode seven, The Body Double, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. I know. I also kept forgetting. I was like, is it six? Is it seven? We're getting further along, aren't we? Yeah. Slowly but surely. Right. So this episode, initial thoughts? Oh my gosh, I loved it. <laughs> I know. I really liked it. It's probably the best one we've seen yet. It was so fun. I think. Yeah. I think especially because we really get drawn into the mystery as it relates to, like, we're definitely getting to see more of Ogden, mm-hmm. and Brackenreed actually has, like, a life outside the police force. Right, yes. Um, and Murdoch, you know, having somewhat of a, like, his own, like, the, the case hits him personally. Not in, like, his life, but in his, um, you know, thoughts. That's stupid. Um, Whatever. (laughs) We can get more into it once we actually know what we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so I am tasked with covering the synopsis of the episode. Okay, so the episode starts off with Brackenreed at a theatrical performance of Macbeth starring the great Stella Smart as the leading lady when a skeleton falls onto the stage from the ceiling which has been weakened from a storm. It's determined that the body belongs to Stella Smart's late husband, Virgil, who was known to have died three years prior. Stella and her husband had owned the theater together when he was discovered dead in his office by Stella and the rest of her theater troupe of a presumed heart attack. In their individual interviews with Murdoch and Brackenreed, the four actors each recite an identical version of events, rather dramatically, indicating they're hiding something. So good. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I loved it. It's Honestly, the actual actors who were playing these actors did a really good job of being like... Actors. Uh, yeah, being actors, but also being actors trying to act in the real world and not on stage and like trying to get that that perfect balance Mm -hmm. of like being kind of melodramatic and and obviously lying but still also being actors (laughs) you know potentially believe yeah 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 anyways so the skeleton shows clear evidence of a stab wound to the heart as the cause of death which would be impossible to smake to smake to mistake for a heart attack, so now Murdoch must determine whose body was buried under Virgil's name three years ago. The body is exhumed and no identifying features are found, so Murdoch tasks Dr. Ogden to use the research of William Wilhelm Hiss, a German anatomist, to build a facial reconstruction off of the skull. When the reconstruction is shown to Stella and her players, they recognize him immediately as Eddie Green, a man who belonged with the theater while Virgil was alive and obtained only smaller roles. Murdoch is further convinced they are lying (laughs) and that they did know what happened to Eddie. By this point, he's discovered a secret love nest behind Virgil's old office where he carried on affairs with young actresses at the theater and identifies it as the scene of the crime by remaining bloodstains. He's also found glass shards in the room with Stella Smart's fingerprints on them, confirming that she had at one point been in the room, despite her denials. Oh my gosh, that was so good. The way that he managed to get all of their fingerprints and all of them just having no idea. It was so good. Yeah. So, he finally decides the only way to break down the collective lies of the troupe is to have the actors reenact the events of their story of discovering Virgil dead in his office. He has them get in costume and one by one demonstrate their part in the night's events, during which he points out some of the illogical and out-of-character actions they claim to have made, as if he were their director, poking at their, their character motivations. 
He asserts they knew the body found in the office was Eddie Green and put on a show for the constable and the doctor they sent for that night and explains that their underlying motivation, as an actor would say, was to cover up the murder of Virgil. Once he reveals the hidden room and that he can confirm not only Stella had been inside it, but also Ellen, the young Juliet of the troupe. Murdoch suggests that Stella had caught her husband with Ellen and stabbed him in a crime of passion. She confesses and says that the others convinced her to cover it up in order to protect the theater, and another member of the troupe strangled Eddie just because he was hanging around. And that's more or less how it ends. Woohoo! Nice. It was so fun. This episode was so fun. <laughs> I forgot that part. <laughs> the end. <laughs> and scene. <laughs> yeah, just watching the actors be so dramatic the entire time, I loved. Mm-hmm. Especially the woman who played Stella Smart, you know, like. Oh, great. So fabulous. The moment she when she was fainting over and over again on the couch or whatever. I <laughs> like, know. It was so good. And I think also, like, the way she would, like, when she was being really dramatic, sometimes she would go deep down in her <laughs> voice for no reason. Like, it didn't even really uh, yeah. make sense. <laughs> oh, it was so great. I loved that. Um, but yeah. The moment. So, a little background for any listeners who don't know us. We were both in theater in high school together. Yeah. Huge the- theater kids. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so... The moment when there's when Bracken reads all talking at the beginning of the episode, how he's gonna go see Shakespeare and the importance of Shakespeare, and then mm-hmm. walks into the theater and in the background you see the play and you see that it says Macbeth is the play that they're doing. I'm like, oh, uh oh, that's already foreshadowing to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think also like especially with this episode, we're getting Bracken Reed. As more than just a militant man, like, like, well, I guess militant's not the right word, but as more than just, like, a man of his profession or of law or whatever, that he, he has an affinity for the arts, you know, yeah. and um, in his own way, and that he deeply respects traditional theater, yes. whereas at that time, you know, also at play is this tension of like maintaining the existence of the theater because it's one of the last theaters in the city that isn't vaudeville or or uh, gilbert and sullivan which is what he's referencing when he says that now it's just pirates and and so on um right because he's talking about pirates of penzance right and um and that that was like probably a concern at the time Mm -hmm. although i'm surprised to hear that there probably were other theaters in Toronto. Like, I find it hard to believe that this was, like, the last holdout because, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think what Murdoch says about how, like, you know, art changes, but Shakespeare's been around for ages. You're not going to – it's not going to be killed off by magic tricks, right? Yeah, these are not the, the dying breaths of Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. A little nod to the audience. Yes, we do still. <laughs> know who Shakespeare is and know of their plays. Oh, it was so cute um, with Crabtree. I know. And the other men being like, what's Shakespeare about? It's kind of hard to read and figure out. And Murdoch's like, it's not just about the language or whatever, why, why it stood the test of time. And then Crabtree comes back to him. He's like, I think I figured it out. He's just talking about the heart. Right. And it's like, oh, and- yes, he is. And, like, Crabtree doesn't have a lot going on in this episode, but I still find that moment really, like, important, Mm -hmm. especially for him, because, you know, Crabtree is, he's not like Murdoch and Brackenreed. Like, Brackenreed, you know, he was probably educated in a certain way, and so was Murdoch as a Catholic, Mm because Catholics educated there a lot, were, were into formal education. And Crabtree... You know, the suggestion is that this he hasn't read Shakespeare before or he still has it's like kind of a new experience for him or he's still mm. only just getting it. But it sort of introduces the Crabtree, despite any like class origins or whatever, he's uh, he's sensitive and curious, right? That he has potential for all of the same 
things as as any of the other characters. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, he can pursue and, and he has this sort of affinity for for kind of the more artistic or emotional stuff. Mm-hmm. And that will end up being kind of, I keep on alluding to the future, but that does kind of become more prominent in the future um, as he more and more becomes sort of like a, a romantic or a visionary, you know, the same way, even just in this episode, they're doing a bit of word investigating, right? Because they find oh, yeah. the messed up newspaper. Mm-hmm. And Crabtree is like, this would make an excellent game. He's alluding to Hangman, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that that he will see the future, see the possibilities of things that nobody else at the time is seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Canned meat. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can you imagine? Um, I think there's actually a part, not to, like, spoil it, but where he, he basically is like, imagine if they would give you your bread already sliced. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, the genius. But yeah, when I think of it, I don't think of the the sliced bread or the hangman kind of things. It's when he thinks of things that are like, like, oh, I, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, second guess the possibility of werewolves or whatever, right? But he's... Uh. He's kind of more open to mm-hmm. things than anybody else. And not necessarily because he's superstitious or because he's stupid, mm-hmm. but just because he's more open-minded to the fantastic. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in this episode, we also kind of... I didn't get into it in my synopsis, but kind of the story arc of Murdoch, he, um, at the end of the episode, the last scene is actually... Him at the grave of Eddie Green. And he, we find out that he paid for the burial because Eddie Green had no family. And, you know, kind of in in his storyline, we see him and Dr. Ogden closer and speaking on more like personal terms, more on terms of friendship rather than just business. Mm -hmm. But I think more importantly, you know, like throughout the whole episode, multiple people are quoting Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. But especially Ogden and Murdoch begin sort of semi-communicating in Shakespeare and that they will understand each other through these quotations. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that that will continue to happen and kind of showing that they have, like, they have this, this understanding, this tie that is beyond science and mystery. I think also in this episode, we start to get sort of like an elevated production value. But I don't know if it's just, that's just something I spotted this time around. That doesn't mean that wasn't true before as well. But I think particularly with the costumes, um, when they were, when the actors were brought into the station to give their accounts of, of the night, um, particularly Ellen and Stella are both dressed much better than we've seen side characters dressed until now, I think. Especially, like, it was really obvious the first three episodes that, you know, all the clothes were really plain. They didn't have a lot of embellishment and they were kind of boring and and so on. Whereas the walking suits that the two women were wearing were a little bit more well-cut, you know, Mm -hmm. and well-trimmed. Um, had finer details, and especially they had very kind of elaborate hats with feathers on, you know. And so I kind of thought that that was a cool, in- cool little indication. I hope that it means kind of that, you know, at that point they had started to get the ball rolling and were given more more money <laughs> to mm-hmm. to work with at that time. Mm-hmm. But of course, they only wore them for that one scene. And then yeah. they wore their costumes, their stage costumes. Mm-hmm. Well, I have more things to say about the episode, but I kind of want to save it for the end. Okay. I think one of the things that I just really, that, that I really liked, that just felt like a great moment of storytelling, is when all of the actors were giving their accounts 
for what had happened mm-hmm. on the night of the murder and the mm-hmm. way that it was shot. Yeah, and quickly cut. Yeah, where you could you could infer that everyone was giving the same story, all dramatic with like for their own little flares, but that no. <laughs> but that you could tell it was rehearsed mm-hmm. just from the way that they shot it, right? Before you even get Murdoch to the verbatim copies. Yeah, before you even get to Murdoch saying how it sounded suspicious and like their their stories were all the same. You just got it from the way that they shot it, which is just top-notch storytelling. Yeah, I feel like you can tell that kind of a lot more went into this episode. Mm-hmm. A lot more kind of like layers and even as you say, yeah, like even just camera work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um because I, I will grab screenshots of, like, faceless shots. Mm-hmm. And there are way more in this episode. And it's not because, you know, they're wasting time. But it's because they're making more kind of, like, artistic choices and more visual cues mm. that they're really, like, working on. Mm. So do you want to talk about your topic? Sure, I'll get into my research this week. I looked into facial reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Because um, in the episode, we see Murdoch bring a block of clay to Ogden, who's like, what's this? This is a weird gift. <laughs> um, and he suggests going through the work of Wilhelm His to do facial reconstruction on the skull that they have that they have not yet identified to see what the person would look like. So I'll go a little into Wilhelm His first and his background, um, because that's, we don't always get name drops and we got a name drop here. Mm -hmm. So he was born in 1831. He studied medicine in a bunch of places. He studied in Basel, Berlin, Würzburg, Bern, Vienna, and Paris. He received a doctorate in 1854, and in 1857, at the age of 26, he became a professor of anatomy and physiology at the University of Basel. 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 Saying it like the Brit, like the Brits, but it's not even spelled like the herb. <laughs> How's it spelled? Uh, B-A-S-E-L. Uh, I think Basil is probably as accurate as not. So, obviously, he's known for the Bach bust reconstruction that he did. Um, but something else he's known for is his rejection of uh, quote-unquote soft inheritance, which is the belief that the idea that um, the offspring will take on characteristics that the parent gained through their life oh right so that idea of like someone inherited uh, memory or instincts or yeah yeah like like when there were theories of evolution that we were taught in biology one of them was like um only the like only giraffes that had longer necks so therefore they were able to oh, reach oh, the food. Oh, okay, way different. Right? <laughs> like, different, different than inherited memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, verse, well, so that's like, right? So that's, you know, it's like, oh, you had a longer neck, therefore you survived. That's like selection in the way mm-hmm. that we think of evolution now. But this was the idea that like... You grew. Yeah. Or that like yeah. the ways that you change physically even during your life, right? The idea that like, because we're constantly taking out our wisdom teeth at some point, we'll just be, you know. Yeah, which, as we found out, um, we're not, like, selectively picking people out for not having wisdom teeth, and then mm-hmm. therefore they go on. It's like, no. So um, we're, not, we're not, like, quote-unquote breeding for a lack of wisdom teeth, right? Mm-hmm. So that's soft inheritance, then. And he was like someone who really rejected that idea and that it was really common at the time to believe that and that was before darwin too right well just around it was around the same time and a lot of and um it was sort of competing ideologies okay or thinking that they were side by side potentially Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and he, like, many years before it became more commonplace to um, reject soft inheritance, uh, he was doing that. So he's known for that in his work on um, embryos and their different um, stages. Mm. But so his work on reconstruction by 1895... The exact year. Just in time. <laughs> I know. He published a three-dimensional reconstruction of box face. And it was based off of the skull and his precise measurements of facial tissue depths on cadaver heads. He collected that tissue depth data by using a thin needle with a small rubber piece on it that would ride up the needle as it was pushed um, into the tissue of the cadaver. Oh my god. And it was placed at a right angle to the bone and pressed in until the point touched the bone. So that way he was able to measure using that needle and the little slider on it, the thickness of the tissue. So he mm-hmm. measured 15 specific locations on faces of f- 24 male and 4 female suicide victims and nine men who'd died of wasting illnesses. Yeah, so he did not have a huge um, amount of... Data. (laughs) Yeah, when he was doing this. So uses nowadays, um, it's used in biological anthropology to approximate the appearances of early hominids, which I think we've probably all seen with uh, potential Neanderthal constructions, right? Well, I know the method more... From bones. Oh, we'll um, get into bones as well. A little, okay, good. A little. <laughs> yeah. Because that's what immediately sprung to, my, sprung to mind um, of how I would have known it. Same. Or recognized that, <laughs> that it was possible, right? Oh, yeah, same. So that's biological anthropology. In archaeology, they were used to validate the remains of historical figures. Ooh. Right? Isn't that cool? Yeah. So now in forensics, facial reconstruction was popularized by Wilton M. Krogman. He wrote a book in 1962 detailing his method for approximation. Um, A number of other facial reconstructionists helped popularize the method in the late 1970s and 80s. Seemed like that was when it started to take off in forensics. So usually what people do um, to make a reconstruction is they'll take a cast of the skull and mandible rather than using the bones themselves to build off of. Yeah. Which, you know, makes sense. Ogden, of course, just was putting clay right onto the bone. Right on Um, there. Yeah. And Murdoch just (laughs) wanders around the city with it. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. (laughs) And But so also we can create scans of bones and do reconstruction with 3D software rather than physical casts and clay. Mm -hmm. Uh, But either way, it's done in layers So first, the facial muscles are layered on, and there's like a specific order of temporalis, masseter, buccinator. (laughs) I don't think I'm saying that right. Um, And occipitofrontals, or occipitofrontals. Not sure. Uh, Finally, the soft tissue of the neck is done, and then they do the nose and lips before any of the other muscles. Like, this is the kind of thing where I just don't understand, like, these kinds of details of how they can decide the width of the lips and all of this stuff, like, facet mm. was really interesting to me. Um, so they do approximately as wide as the interpupillary distance. So you know how, like, did you ever watch, like, a weird documentary when they talked about, like, quote-unquote beauty with symmetry and the width of the nose and the mouth or something with relation to the eyes. I've seen things like it, but I don't know if it's the same when you're talking about. I don't, yeah. I, don't, I, of course, don't remember because this was God knows how long ago that I watched whatever video it is I'm thinking of. Um, but yeah, so the edges of the lips, if you were to draw a straight line up, would go right to the center of the pupils, just about. What? Not for me. Or interpupillary goes- distance, maybe even... More on the inside of the pupil. Yeah, it goes on the in- Well, I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm moving my hands, but... Well, except that's, right? That's an average. Like, not everyone has that exactly. Yeah. Right? So these right. are... But these are the rough things that they go by to do some of these facial reconstructions. Mm-hmm. 
And similarly, that distance, like where the end of the mouth would be, um, also varies with age, sex, race, and occlusion. So it's really What's variable. occlusion? Uh, good question. I didn't look it up. I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Kalinda from the future. I looked up occlusion. It looks like in this context, they're talking about contact between the teeth. So how the teeth touch when your mouth is closed. I guess that would affect the shape of the lips. Okay, back to past selves. And so the nose, the nose, is really difficult to reconstruct since it's mostly cartilage. And right. the bone shape itself is really limited. So I have, I have like a direct quote for supposedly what they do. It says the nasal profile is constructed by first measuring the width of the nasal aperture and the nasal spine using a calculation of three times the length of the spine plus the depth of tissue marker number five will yield the approximate nose length like wow that's a lot of assumptions math yeah and math (laughs) (laughs) yeah that is a a lot of assumptions yeah, there's even more about the nose that's um, complicated, and I just gave up because I'm like, mm-hmm. it sounds like a lot of guesswork. So after the nose and your lips are done, uh, they add the muscles of facial expression and the soft tissue around the eyes, finally with ears, and then they build up tissue around the entire face until the thickness markers are covered and specific characterizations are added. And some of that has to do with, like, if you know, perchance, that this person had wrinkles, or if you know potentially their race, you can know whether they had hooded eyelids and some of that, some of those things where they, artistic, they make artistic choices. Right. Really is what they do. So obviously, there are a lot of problems with facial reconstruction. The data used for average facial tissue thickness available to forensic artists is still really limited in age, sex, and body builds. So until the data is expanded, the likelihood of producing an accurate reconstruction is limited. Like, it's just not really going to work. And, of course, the methodological standardization itself is lacking. So there still isn't a single official method for reconstructing faces, and things like hairstyles and eyebrows, which can hugely change the way someone looks, are not present Mm. in the bone structure. Mm -hmm. They showed in this article a picture of a girl next to her reconstruction, and to me they look so grossly different. I mean, she obviously had thin eyebrows and full lips and a soft nose, and the reconstruction gave her these thick eyebrows and thin, wide lips and, like, weirdly protruding teeth, and, like, her nose was really thin. Like, it really... Weird. You'd think they could get the teeth. Yeah, but I but it, perhaps it was even just the way that the, like, mouth opened versus closed, but even still, like, it just didn't... It didn't look right. And But, of course, like, the main things that you could tell from the bone structure, such as... um her jaw shape and cheekbone, right? If you were to just take an mm-hmm. outline, that was spot on. But like something like the thickness of eyebrows and and even like her nose as well, like looks so different. It's like, mm-hmm. and her lips as well. Like you don't know how big someone's lips are from a bone, <laughs> um, which were really like for her, like she was gorgeous And the reconstruction, I just thought, was not up to par. (laughs) So, but there is hope with uh, assistance of computers. They'll be able to use pattern recognition and digital image processing to overcome some of the current limitations. Mm. You know, I'm dubious, but I get it. And then also, there's the subjectivity of it. It's an art form more than anything else. So there's artistic subjectivity for lips and nose and hair. Um, And a lot of people where if you, not a suspect, um, but someone who's giving their account. A witness. Oh, yes. A witness is mostly going to be like, oh, they had like black hair. I don't totally remember what they look like, right? But I remember that they were about this tall and had like Mm -hmm. really like dark hair. And it's like, you don't know the color of their hair also from looking at a bone, just the shape of it. So Mm -hmm. there's, you know, there's a lot that's just lacking. So- Media. Media. 
facial reconstruction is all over fiction. So TV shows like CSI and NCIS, and famously Bones, use it all the time. In actual cases, though, facial reconstruction is used as a last resort. So sorry, Bones Mm -hmm. fans. Well, especially because, like, at least in Bones, it works because the entire premise is that they're only going to work with the skeleton. Whereas, yeah. like, most most crime shows are not working on ancient cases, right? Yeah, that's true. It was funny seeing Ogden, like, pulling the bones out of a vat, and my immediate <laughs> thought was bones. <laughs> <laughs> was like of them getting like all of the gross like all of the flesh off <laughs> yeah i guess of b- bones but like in a vat like that mm-hmm. oh, loved it i watched a lot of bones <laughs> me <back> too <laughs> <laughs> a little sad though understandable that facial reconstruction is not um as legit not yeah not as reliable yeah not super accurate though like really fun and who doesn't like angela she was my favorite i know but the fact that they're also able to identify certain historical figures from their bones as well that's cool that's the coolest especially because paintings are disgusting like (laughs) first of all you know sometimes you're just like okay it could be that Beauty perceptions of the time are influencing how this painting looks. Mm-hmm. The artist's skill is influ- influencing how this painting looks. And mm-hmm. it's like, I mean, because of what I did my research on, I'm looking at paintings of of 15th century monarchs and being like, dude, <laughs> you're not looking so good. <laughs> and, and I would really like to know what they actually looked like. Without the, you know, hair plucking. Well, I mean, I guess, I guess that, as you say, you, they can't really speak mm-hmm. for where the hair is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like, what would they have looked like if they weren't painted so pale? Or what would they have looked like if they weren't looking so like Elizabethan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't <Yeah>. know. Yeah, <laughs> they all look the same. Well, and it's it's hard, like. Like, something else that I think facial reconstruction could could be detrimental to it. Something something that um, would be bad for it. Something that could um, screw it up? Yeah. Throw it off? Yeah. Is just, like, racist stereotypes as well. Yeah, definitely. Because if you, you know the race of the victim, and so therefore you think you're going to do a better job at portraying them, I guess, because you quote-unquote know that a people of a certain race have this or that characteristic when that's not necessarily the case. I mean, if it's all based on averages, though, then it's not really, like... Well, yeah, some of it is, but I mean, even But because a lot of it is subjective and, like, your own choice. How thick you're going to make the lips, how wide you're going to make the nose, how bushy you're going to make the eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Like, if you think that this person was XYZ, you might change that. Mm -hmm. You're going to do it based off of you know racial stuff whether it's true or like and especially if there's not enough data to actually give accurate information for different races that's gonna be a problem so yeah something that it also needs (laughs) the facial reconstruction also will need to work on all right so that's that's it for my research okay that's my turn yeah, are we we're ready I'm ready to dive in, talk about some Shakespeare. Right. So, okay. The thing is my topic, like I w- I'm so excited for it, like technically, but I'm also sort of like once I got to the end of it, I was like, is this even relevant? <laughs> it's like I've spent days on this. <laughs> um, but Hopefully it'll still be entertaining and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did mine basically on on the play Macbeth. The Scottish play. Yeah, excuse me. Excuse me. The <laughs> Scottish play. And, um, <laughs> and sort of its history and its historical context. And also, I think at the end, hopefully we can talk a bit about like how the show uses the Shakespearean plots to kind of play with in, in the episode with the characters. So 
I'm going to first do kind of like a quick, hopefully a quick rundown of what happens in the play. Um, So, the play. Macbeth, it starts with Macbeth and Banquo running into the weird sisters who prophesize that Macbeth will be king, but Banquo will sire future kings. They're like, that was weird, crazy ladies. But when Macbeth tells his wife, Lady Macbeth, she insists that he fulfill the prophecy by killing the king on his planned visit. He does so, but demonstrates immediate disgust at his bloody hands, which, in context, is more interesting when you remember that Macbeth is a celebrated general whose bloodlust in war is actually argued by critics to disgust his fellow Scotsmen, which I didn't know when I first read Macbeth. What? Whoa. (laughs) Well, I mean, I knew he was a war general, but it just didn't click for me. And I think, yeah, the supposition is that they're talking about him as being so good at war that they're like "Eh." (laughs) Um, it's a turn off (laughs) it's kind of a little weird Uh, Lady Macbeth chastises him for being so pathetic she wishes she were a man so that she could pursue her ambition that doesn't suit the body she was given and calls on the spirits to give her the tough skin of a man the unsex me exactly the famous Uh, um, moment The king's sons flee after the death of their father, sensing their lives are in danger, as their father had proclaimed them to be his successors to the crown. Macbeth is made king by the Scottish lairds, and now he begins to worry about Banquo as he was foretold to beget kings, and Macbeth wants his own line to maintain the throne. He has Banquo killed, but Banquo's son escapes. He receives this news sitting at a feast when Macbeth sees the ghost of Banquo arrive at the feast. No one else sees the ghost. So this is sort of the, it's the pinnacle of the play where we realize something's wrong and that Macbeth is going crazy. After this, everything quickly goes downhill. Macbeth becomes paranoid and tyrannical. He consults the weird sisters again who tell him to beware Macduff, who's another laird or general, I don't even know. Um... But he's, you know, famously Macduff. And that no man of woman born can kill him. And that he won't be defeated until Great Burnham Wood to High Dunsinane Hill shall come against him. He takes this to mean he can't be killed at all and that he will never be defeated because a forest cannot travel up a hill. Uh, Also, I think his castle is on that hill. But that was not clear in my research until much later. So I forgot to add that. Anyways. He has Macduff and his whole family killed, and Macduff escapes. Meanwhile, through all this, his wife has gone mad and dies. Macbeth talks, after hearing about the death of his wife, he talks about the futility of existence, saying that life is a walking shadow signifying nothing, as Murdoch quotes at the end of the episode. Mm. By this time, people have figured out that Macbeth is a traitor and a villain, and King Duncan's son and Macduff organize a battle to overthrow Macbeth. He still thinks he's invincible, though, but now that his wife is dead, he's kind of nihilistic about it all. He Hmm. goes into battle and is killed by Macduff, who it is then discovered was not by a woman born, but wasn't delivered by C-section. Duncan's son is then crowned as the rightful king of Scotland, the Yand. So, I read Macbeth in high school. And I've seen a few productions of it, and I always thought it was really bland. It felt really long, when in fact it's actually Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, and it's almost half the length of Hamlet. But the oh. characters are really flat, and so it always kind of felt like like it was dragging on. Mm. However, reading the historical context of the play, I found it much more interesting if you look at it as a vehicle for propaganda. Whoa. I mean, all of Shakespeare's plays are a vehicle for propaganda. I mean, all everything is. Um, but Macbeth especially. Right, he loved the queen. Yeah. Well, yeah. For about a decade, Shakespeare was writing plays under Queen Elizabeth, and many of these plays flattered her and her position as a female ruler, like Twelfth Night. When she died, King James VI of Scotland who was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, inherited the English throne as well as King James I of England. So he's both King James VI and the first. So Mm. 
complicated. But anyway, King James was really fascinating. When he was crowned King of England and Ireland, he had already reigned in Scotland for almost 58 years, the longest of any Scottish king at the time. He had an interest in writing and political philosophy. He published a couple of treatises on political theory and commissioned an English translation of the Bible known as the King James's Authorized Version, or KJB. The King James's Bible was designed to eliminate problems in previous English translations that aggravated the Puritans and conform to the Episcopal structure of the Church of England. When he was crowned, it was the first time the three realms of Ireland, England, and Scotland were united in one king. Cool. So King James had his own beliefs and background that Shakespeare was emulating in Macbeth, kind of backtracking all of the things that he said while Queen Elizabeth was alive. Hmm. By writing a story about Scotland and Scottish history, he's honoring James's origins. Macbeth was a real medieval king of Scotland who reigned at around 1040 AD, and the public would have been familiar with him and with the figure of Banquo. In his time, it was believed King James was descended from the real-life Banquo, and so the witch's prediction that he will sire future kings is meant to directly reference King James himself. Oh. Within the play, Macbeth is narratively denounced because he does things that King James was fervently opposed to. He consults with witches, he commits treason, and he gains his crown by a consensus of the people rather than by inheritance. Mm. Okay, first of all are the witches. King James was particularly preoccupied with the threat of witchcraft and wrote a philosophical dissertation in three books called Demonology that discussed necromancy, divination, possession, Demons, werewolves, vampires. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> a lot. It's kind of weird because it's like, dude, you're king. What are you doing? <laughs> but <laughs> so this is a quote describing sort of what, what the book was. It was a political yet theological statement to educate a misinformed populace on the history, practices, and implications of sorcery and the reasons for persecuting a witch in a Christian society under the rule of canonical law. So Shakespeare wrote the Weird Sisters and their spells largely based on James's demonology publication. Mm-hmm. Lady Macbeth, who is sometimes considered to be the ultimate villain of the play, more so than even Macbeth himself, is also sort of a subliminal message to King James. In Lady Macbeth, Shakespeare is flattering King James at the expense of his predecessor, Queen Elizabeth. I imagine, I mean, this is a, this is a guess, but I imagine James didn't like Queen Elizabeth as she had had her, his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, executed because Elizabeth feared their right to the throne. Hey. Lady Macbeth's arc consists of a woman who tries to grab power and renounce her womanhood for the sake of her ambition. Not only that, she invokes the spirits to make her more like a man, which is a type of witchcraft. So the message of Lady Macbeth is that if any woman who attempts to step into a man's rightful position of power, like Mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth did when she ascended the throne, she would be too feeble to endure it and would ultimately go mad and be condemned. Wow. So Macbeth is a famously anti-feminist text, whereas many of Shakespeare's other plays are very feminist, or you could argue. So also of note is that Macbeth gains his crown not because of a divine birthright, but because the lairds voted for it. And King James believed in something called royal absolutism. He argued in his writings that even if a king is behaving unjustly and tyrannically, his people should still remain loyal to him, because the fallout of rebellion and the loss of monarchical rule would be worse than simply enduring a bad king. And this is particularly on the nose because just two years after his ascension to the English throne, James was the target of a failed assassination attempt, the gunpowder plot of 1605. Does this sound familiar? (laughs) Gunpowder treason and plot? Yeah. So Mary Queen of Scots was Catholic, but King James was not. However, 
English Catholics had hoped that under his reign, Catholics would begin to be treated better than they were under Elizabeth. When this hope faded, a group led by a Robert Catesby planned to blow up the House of Lords during the state opening of Parliament when King James and his family and allies would be there on the 5th of November. Another element of their plan was to kidnap King James's daughter, Elizabeth, who was like a child at the time, and they would install her as a Catholic queen to succeed King James. They were found out and in the trials used equivocation to defend themselves and their co-conspirators, or famously used equivocation. I don't know how many people did that. So equivocation is sort of complicated. It seems like if you're deep into your master's degree in philosophy or theology, then it has a lot of applications and definitions. But for us, equivocation is when you use ambiguous language or double meanings to conceal the truth. Like when we say something is unequivocally true, we mean that there are no two ways about it, or that we are not attempting to double speak or hedge our words. Some Jesuits at the time believed that equivocation was ethical, especially in life-or-death situations or to deter a greater evil. So in the trials, they would, you know, take the oath or a vow of truth or whatever on the stand and then lie, right? Mm. Or something like that. In regards to Macbeth and Shakespeare's audience, equivocation was seen as no different than lying. In the play, a porter openly derides an equivocator for committing treason in a clear allusion to the gunpowder plot. The lines, fair is foul and foul is fair, not only indicate that something is unnatural and topsy-turvy in Scotland, but they also reference a sermon made at the time about the plotters, which went something like, be they fair or foul, mad or sad, the father of days hath made them both. And that was like, would have been recognizable to the audience. Wow. Also in the play, Macduff's family, before they are murdered, have a dialogue that goes, what is a traitor? And the reply is, why, one that swears and lies. As in one who swears to be telling the truth or swears allegiance to the king and then lies. Mm. What's funny is that this line is technically an equivocation too because it has a double meaning. Yeah. So I don't know if that was a wee sly thing from Shakespeare, because to be honest, if you take that to be the meaning of Shakespeare, right? I mean, all of his puns, all of his jokes <laughs> yeah. are usually based on double meanings. But yeah, yeah. So more so, the Weird Sisters' prophecy is nothing but equivocation, yeah. further condemning not just witches, but Catholics and almost saying that they're the same. When the witches say Macbeth can't be killed by a man of woman born, it turns out that Macduff can kill him because his mother didn't give birth to him. When they say Macbeth can't be defeated until a forest marches onto a hill, it turns out that the Burnham Wood comes to the hill carried by soldiers using branches as camouflage. At the end of the play, Macbeth warns against those that, quote, palter with us in a double sense that keep the word of promise to our ear and break it to our hope. The play Macbeth has been called a gunpowder play and was used to demonstrate the horrors that are unleashed through treason as well as the inherently treasonous nature of equivocation. Or that's at least what Shakespeare is sort of trying to say to get chummy with King James. So much stuff I didn't know about in Macbeth. That's really cool. Oh my god, same. And I can't believe I studied this in English class in high school. Same. Nobody gonna gonna hit me in here about all like I mean especially because you know when I was looking into it and how I said that it was one of the shortest tragedies there is theories that the reason why it's so short is because there are pieces missing oh and one reason why that's sort of further supported is just because the characters are so flat and boring and and the plot doesn't have a lot really like filling it out Sort of feels like stuff happens off stage. Yeah, I mean, well, tons of stuff ha- happens off stage, but it's also like, like even Lady Macbeth is really not that compelling of a character compared to someone like, I don't know. I mean, all I can think about is Cleopatra, but I haven't read Antony and Cleopatra, so I can't make that statement. But <laughs> who's a compelling Shakespearean character? I mean, 
at least in like, say, King Lear, which I hated, I rooted for Cordelia, you know? Mm. I was on her team. In Macbeth, you don't really root for anyone. There's no one that's compelling you. If it's a tragedy, you need there to be moments where you just think to yourself, you know, like, oh, if only, if only he had done this, if only he had taken this opportunity at this moment. Like, there has to be yeah. parts in it that that could have been different, that keep you kind of on the edge of your seat, hoping mm-hmm. that, you know, this time the friar will get the message to Romeo kind of thing, right? Yeah. You also have to, yeah, you have to be able to root for the characters, which means there has to be something there about the characters that makes you want to root for them. Yeah. And that's just not... And I find Macbeth doesn't have that, yeah. So I also looked into the curse of the Scottish play. Oh my god, yes, please. The thing is, a lot of kind of like the reports or like legends explaining this are kind of... They don't add up with some of the other stuff I saw. So it's, you know, rumors, right? But so apparently, you know, legend has it that the play was cursed because the spells Shakespeare included were real spells. And Ah. so witches put a curse on the play because they didn't want people to learn about their spells. Oh, it was also, again, I can't like get this to be confirmed, but it was banned for five years early on after it was first performed by King James. And I can't figure out why, because so much of it is like in his favor. But it could be, my immediate assumption was it was like, oh, here's the Scottish king. He's evil. You know, yeah. <laughs> doesn't look good yeah. um, on the face. But some reports say that he banned it because he was scared of the witches. Oh my god! He didn't like he didn't like all this magic happening. Mm-hmm. As for unlucky events that happened during productions, starts with the very first one. There were rumors that the very first production of it, the person playing Lady Macbeth, died just before the show started, and Shakespeare had to take on the role himself. Oh my gosh. Which is kind of bananas to know Shakespeare played Lady Macbeth, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Also, possibilities was that, again, on that same first production, uh, real daggers were used and therefore the actual actor died being stabbed. But the thing is that that's all done off stage, so I don't know how that would have happened. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a huge hole in there story i don't I don't know the royal shakespeare company said this they would know i do not know <laughs> it was a scene that was cut <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's one of those missing scenes maybe <laughs> the missing scenes are the ones okay <laughs> i just got a little i just got a little tunnel vision there but i was thinking like maybe those scenes are missing because those are the ones with the real spells on it or those are the ones with the with the that made it unlucky and so if you take them out it's a conspiracy <laughs> um what's also happened is i mean just a series of your typical like bad luck of like uh, people falling off stage Injuring themselves, um, heavy stage equipment falling on people. (laughs) And if you aren't familiar, one of the biggest superstitions is that you shouldn't say Macbeth within the theater. And so common things to call it other than Macbeth, at least that I've heard, were like Macdeath, Macbreath, the Scottish play, the Bard's play, Macbee. And it's also bad luck to quote Macbeth in the side the theater unless it's part of actual rehearsals. Oh. And so if you break any of these rules, basically, um, to break the curse, you have to go outside the theater, or at least the one I know, is you have to go outside the theater and like spin around three times, tap your shoulders, and then say Macbeth 
three times and then knocked to be let into the theater. Oh, okay. I did not remember that. (laughs) (laughs) There are a lot of kind of variations on this. Mm -hmm. And apparently it's been the source of like a couple jokes on British television, namely like Black Adder. I think they make some kind of joke about it where then their curse-breaking ritual is a form of patty cake. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and so one of the most famous uh, episodes of Bad Luck in um, a production of Macbeth was when two rival theaters put on Macbeth at the same time. Wow. And the fans of the two actors had a like a bra- a brawl in the street <laughs> and people died oh my god so basically i think the two actors were a man named edwin forrest and the other one was an english actor who i don't remember his name exactly but it was something like mcready and or mccready basically the fans of edwin forrest showed up at the opposite theater with bottles and sticks and you know basically started a riot (laughs) to stop the show from going on and uh people died 100 people were injured and uh the english actor fled and never came to america again (laughs) wow okay so a possible explanation for why Macbeth seems to always have bad luck or tends to have bad luck is that Because Macbeth is a popular play and it's a box office draw, theaters that are in financial straits will put on Macbeth Mm. to to raise more money. And Mm. so it's more that um, they're already in trouble or they're already using outdated equipment or unsafe rigging because they don't have the money to support the production because Macbeth actually is quite a technical production because of all the magic and apparitions that have to happen in the play mm-hmm. and so one reason why maybe actors are like don't say Macbeth is because they don't want to hear that their theater is going to put on Macbeth because that means they might be out of a job mm. okay so, what I kind of wanted to talk about at the end here, if do you have anything? Uh, to... No, no. Okay. Lo- great, great, fabulous. Okay. What I kind of wanted to talk about at the end here to bring it back to the episode that we watched is I kind of have like a few theories, or not really theories, I don't know, just theories. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, because so frequently in the episode, they... They allude to the fact that this murder is Shakespearean. You know, we have um, we have the murderers, but we also have Murdoch. And so while the murderers, I think, are doing kind of like their own echo of Macbeth, I think Murdoch is sort of doing, is simultaneously having like a bit of a Hamlet hash out. Because mm. for one... I think the moment when he sees the face of Eddie Green for the first time was a pretty big deal. Like, it stood out among all the other episodes we've seen. And as soon as he sees his face and we see how it affects him, he's thinking about who Eddie Green was when he was alive, who his family was, you know, what what did he do and who was he as a person? And, I mean, I may be grasping here, but I sort of felt like it emulated the... Alas, poor Yorick speech of Hamlet, Mm -hmm. which, you know, Ogden has already sort of reminded us of. Because in it, Hamlet goes on to talk about, you know, the life that was in the skull and who they were as a person. I mean, it's also an exhumed body, which immediately calls back to that scene in Hamlet, to me at least. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because they're there for the exhumation which I don't think they usually will have a scene set there. But also, at the end, when he finally gets all the actors together to confess, I think he's sort of doing a the plays the thing to catch the conscience of the king thing, where he's having them play it out 
in their costumes, exactly as they said, with their lines. Mm -hmm. And he's, in fact, directing them. He's like, now, is this in character for you? What's your underlying motivation? Mm -hmm. And he's playing the director of this play to catch the conscience, which he does, because in the end, Stella, Stella honestly didn't have to confess anything. She does because she's emotional. She can't hold it back, right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, when we get to the end and Ogden meets up with him in the cemetery, in the graveyard cemetery, (laughs) Um, you know, we find out that he's paid for the burial of Eddie Green because he himself did not end up having any family of his own and was not actually missed by anybody. Mm. And, you know, Murdoch doesn't really have any reason to feel bad for Eddie Green. I mean, we don't get the impression that Eddie Green was even, like, really that great of a person. Mm -hmm. But that Murdoch saw his face and suddenly felt for him. And then he gives the line, life's but a walking shadow, etc., etc., sound and fury, signifying nothing, all that. Mm-hmm. And while that's a quote from Macbeth, it also sounds like a lot of other stuff Shakespeare has written <laughs> and kind of is like the uh, to be or not to be speech in Hamlet, mm-hmm. as well as the Jacques speech, all the world's a stage in As You Like It, which is also sort of like we come and go with our parts and then, you know, we shuffle off or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's about the transience of life, right? Um And so, you know, we're kind of getting more of these, like, Shakespearean monologues from Murdoch, these kind of existential questionings. And the thing is, we know he's a Catholic, we know he has his faith, but that he's not immune to, I don't know, the... Existential musings? uh, More like the... He's not immune to being overwhelmed by death and Mm -hmm. life, right? Is more what I would think of it as. Because really that's what Eddie Green is. He's a memento mori. Sometimes I forget that memento mori, I just think of it as like, yeah, that's a skull. That's like a reminder of death. When actually it directly translates to remember you will die. (laughs) It's so much more ominous. Oh my gosh. It's like pulls no punches. You will die. Mm, Thanks. But that's really what it means. (laughs) But I also think because Hamlet and Macbeth are both tragedies, Shakespearean tragedies that use the motif of a ghost, I thought that was also kind of interesting. And so while the reconstructed face sort of serves as Murdoch's Yorick, the reconstructed face actually serves as the acting troupe's Banquo, as being like, oh my god, he's still alive, and they know they killed him, right? Mm. So I thought that was sort of interesting. I don't know what you think. No, I like it. Yeah? Plausible bit? Yeah. These, uh, the close readings. (laughs) Yes. I like them. Can you believe that took me all day? (laughs) All day. Just to write it. I had done all the research before. (laughs) (laughs) I loved it when when you texted me. Why why did I even leave high school? I'm still <laughs> trapped here. If I'm still <laughs> doing this. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because it's like, that's essentially what I did, but it's, you know, I wrote a whole f- paper. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know. You know how sometimes when you, the first five page paper you write is like, this is impossible. And then you keep on having to write five-page papers. And now you accidentally write five-page papers without meaning to. And <laughs> Not really. <laughs> Don't think I ever got to that point, but I also wasn't an English major. <laughs> well, just mostly that, like, there's a certain point where it's like, you know, the first time you have to write, well, I think especially in college it's more applicable, where it's like the first time you have to write a 12-page paper, you're like, this is never going to happen. I'm going to fail my freshman seminar. I'm not going to make it in college. I'm going to have to go home. And and then you do it. And then 
after that, they're like, okay, we want it again and again and again. <laughs> but suddenly you're like, okay, I did it. I can do it. And it just, mm-hmm. it ends up being so much easier. Whereas before it was like physically impossible. Right. And, you know, now it's kind of like so easy. Whereas before I would balk at a five page paper. Obviously, I didn't write like a full five pages. And also, I didn't have like a prompt or like a set of criteria that I had to do and stuff like that. And I'm definitely not even like giving footnotes, which I definitely should because I have like, you know, I never wrote papers like this technically in high school. They wanted more like use only the text <laughs> kind of thing. Oh, sure. But um, it's so much easier when you don't have to had a bibliography to just add stuff in it's true we don't gotta cite our sources we could but we but we don't have to i mean we should okay i'm also kind of curious about like the fact that the episode was called body double mm-hmm. because in my head i'm like what's the Macbeth reference here like oh i didn't even go into all of my stupid like reaching a mile to try and get this theory to work kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But that was one that I couldn't really, like, figure out. I mean, it's the title of the episode, so I was like, it has to be important. I can't make it about Macbeth, but obviously there's literally a man who's buried instead of the actual victim, who is a body double. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the idea of having being double cast. That was huh. what it made me think of. And, like, you also have, like, in modern day stuff, you could have a body double who's, like, a stunt double, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, because my best guess was either, even though they don't ever reference any of these Shakespearean plays, but Shakespeare uses a lot of, like, mistaken identity moments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, And also, possibly, I mean, if I'm, again, reaching, because as much of of the historical context I went into for the play Macbeth in the show Murdoch. I don't think they actually like really were talking Mm -hmm. about King James, but you know, the, (laughs) the stuff they did with the actors being like basically lying to the constable and the doctor about the identity of Eddie Green versus Virgil. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. that maybe they were equivocating that they were like this is my husband's office he's been locked inside since i don't know how long and and technically that's not a lie but <laughs> i don't know that that was like on their minds at the time probably not it also occurred to me that like technically adultery is equivocation in that you swear to be faithful to your wife Ooh. or whatever and then you lie and we know he wasn't with another woman mm-hmm. see the pun i did there anyways that's also such a reach <laughs> adultery <laughs> is a common motive in these murder shows so i don't know i think i've exhausted all my stupid theories <laughs> Next week, we're going to be doing episode eight, Still Waters. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't already, check us out on Twitter at Murdoch Pod, at Instagram at Murdoch Podcast. If you like our show, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, tell us what you think. If you have any thoughts on some of the stuff we've talked about, we'd love to hear it on Twitter. Yeah. So until next time. Yeah, have a good week. Bye.